welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Father, we thank you so much for your precious word. Lord, we just think about how there's people throughout the world that that would love to have a scrap of this book. And we have the whole thing bound up for us to carry with us anywhere, to come to it any time. We are a blessed people to have your word. And yet we know that your word would just be a book in a hotel room drawer if it weren't for your spirit opening our eyes to desire your word, to understand your word, to be transformed by your word. So as we open this beautiful word of yours, we pray that your spirit would so illuminate our hearts and minds that we would go out of here worshiping you, Lord. We are fixed on this one thing, to see your goodness and to see your glory, and to see your beauty. And Lord, even as it says in this passage, Lord, we pray that you would help us to hold you up as holy before a watching world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in this Old Testament family reunion. This is the last one. We're going to look at the life of Moses this morning. And then in a couple weeks, we're going to start 1 Peter. And 1 Peter, we're going to be in for a long time. We're going to take a really more in-depth, slower approach. Sometimes we might do a verse or two verses. You might get whiplash because we've done several chapters at a time this way. But we want to give you guys a balanced diet. So a balanced diet is not all epistles. A balanced diet is not all Old Testament. A balanced diet is to, to balance it out and look at different genres, Old Testament, New Testament, different types of literature. Because God's put before us this wonderful banquet of biblical truth through all of his Bible. And we want to spend a little time in each one. And so we're going to do that in a couple of weeks. And what we'll probably do is do that for a few months, then we'll do Advent, and then we'll come back to 1 Peter, but we're going to spend plenty of time and really dig in. Okay, this morning we're looking at the end of the life of Moses. We're in Numbers 20, so take a look at Numbers. Numbers is an incredibly good book with a really bad name, okay? Um, When you read the name Numbers, you think, well, I don't want to read a book of Numbers. It isn't a book of Numbers. There are Numbers. But you know the Hebrew title that book is? You know what they called it? In the Wilderness. Now, if we would call it in the wilderness, there'd be way more Bible studies. Hey, I'm in a Bible study in my house. We're going in the wilderness, you know, with all the opt-out side and all that. People would love that today. So we probably need to change that name, call it in the wilderness. But this is a story of them in the wilderness. Look at verse 1. It says, And the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month. And the people stayed in Kadesh. And Miriam died there and was buried. Uh, Numbers 20 takes place after the Jews have been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And the last mention of that word Kadesh was when the spies were first sent into the promised land. So remember, Moses was sent to, uh, to redeem Israel out of slavery in Egypt. There was the ten plagues, and they went through the Red Sea, and then they received the law on Mount Sinai. And at some point, they came to this place, Kadesh, and they were able to look in the promised land, and they sent a group of spies. And unfortunately, a large amount of those spies came back and gave a bad report. They said, you know, it's a great place, but there's no way we can take it. Bunch of the people kind of got scared. They refused to go in. And God judged that nation for their unbelief. He made them do laps for 40 years. Made them do laps for 40 years. And what was happening there is their kids were going to be allowed to enter, but not them. So the 40 years allowed time for them all to drop off in the wilderness and die out over time. And we see part of that die off here in verse 1. It says, Miriam died there and was buried. That's Moses' sister, part of that first generation. If you look at verse 28, Aaron dies in this chapter. He uh, hands over his priestly garments to Eleazar, and then he drops dead. 
and then they're going to um, go into the promised land without him. So here they are at Kadesh. It's like a, a, a retry of what happened 40 years ago, but there's a problem. Look at verse 2. Now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished with our brothers as they perished before the Lord. It's like, okay, guys, be careful. <laughs> Playing with fire here, literally. This is a replay, guys, of Exodus 17. Right after they had left Egypt, they complained about not having water. And at that time, the Lord told Moses, if he'd strike the rock, water would pour out for him. And so you're having almost a, a, a replay of what happened there. In fact, it's given the same name as that place, Meribah, which means quarreling. And so the people are quarreling, and they're quarreling with Moses. If you look in verse 4, you can see that they're blaming Moses for the lack of water. It says, why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into the wilderness? As if it was Moses' idea. That we should die here, both we and our cattle. And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates. And there is no water to drink. You can hear the whining and the quarreling here against Moses. Moses' initial response is beautiful. Look at what he does in verse 6. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. Isn't that awesome? It's such a great response. Criticism goes to the Lord. And look at how the Lord responds in verse 6. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them, and the Lord spoke to Moses. So Moses, uh, God's glory appears, and he speaks directly to Moses. And I just want to do a little tangent to say Moses was a very unique kind of leader. When Moses needed direction from God, he went to God, he saw God's glory, and he heard from him audibly. He would get those directions, and then he would give those directions to the people. And one, the tangent is, I want to tell you that God doesn't lead his church that way now, okay? I think that's very important for you to realize, because it's common in our valley to hear about a church being led by what's called a Moses model. A Moses model is, is that there's a one charismatic pastor, and he, is, he hears from God, and then he gives the directions to the people. And they'll talk that way. The pastor heard this from God, or he got direction from God, or he's getting God's leading to do this. And then he would come to the people like Moses and give that direction. That's not a biblical way to lead a church, okay? To discover how to lead a New Testament church, we don't look in the Old Testament to see how the nation was led in a very unique time in the wilderness, right? Does that make sense? Because it turns out that actually the New Testament tells us how churches are led. It's funny because you'll hear people say, well, you know, the New Testament doesn't really tell us how churches are led. It actually does. There's plenty to, to glean from it. And in the New Testament, we see that God directed Paul to direct the churches to be led by a plurality of elder pastors. So elder, pastors, same thing. And so you can see this pattern throughout the New Testament that they set up churches to be led by a team of pastor elders, not just one. And that those people don't get some sort of direct divine revelation to lead. They get their d directions from the Bible, okay? And in our church, it's a, it's a team of three pastors. It's Josh and David and myself. We hope to add more soon. But we don't hear from God in a way you can't, okay? I think that's really important because there's this kind of, kind of fantasy talk about how a pastor, you know, gets direction directly from God and gives it to the church as if he has, like, some sort of direct line. We don't have a direct line. You know what we have? same book you have. And in any way that we lead or direct or kind of speak to you in any kind of way of authority, we ought to be able to show you from here, okay? We don't have some special uh, connection. We, we have the Bible like you. We have the Holy Spirit just like you. That is a special connection, of course, but it's one that you all have, 
okay? I think that's super important. And I, I tell you this because, you know, people move, people go other places, and I just want to kind of guard you from that kind of leadership. Because it's a very dangerous place when you have somebody that's saying that they lead the church like Moses, okay? Moses was a very unique leader. Take a look at him, what, he, what happened. So he went before the Lord, and the glory of the Lord appeared to him, and then he heard an audible voice from the Lord, and he received direction. Look at verse 8. Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron and your brother, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord. Okay, um, Moses did a great job hearing from the Lord, and then he actually did do one part of what the Lord said. He did take the staff, okay? So you got that part right. But the rest he didn't do right. Look at verse 10. Then Moses and Aaron gathered before the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water out for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their cattle. Moses did a couple things wrong here. One of them is he spoke to the people, not the rock. Okay, He's supposed to come out and speak to the rock. He speaks to the people. He actually yells at them. Okay? And then he strikes the rock. He's supposed to speak to the rock. He strikes it. He strikes it twice. And the Lord isn't pleased. Look at verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring the assembly into the land, that's the promised land, that I've given them. These were the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, though he had shown himself holy. And so Moses, he fails, it says, to uphold the Lord before the people and show him as holy before the people, verse 12. Verse 13 says that because of that, what the Lord did is he showed himself holy by barring Moses from the land. And um, you might ask yourself, like, why did Moses disobey the Lord? Because it wasn't a slip-up. I know what you're thinking. Well, last time was strike the rock, now it's talk to the rock. How could he, you know, no. No, he was told very clearly, why didn't he obey? And verse 12 says that, that God says it was because of Moses' unbelief. All sin really stems from unbelief. Any area that we're sinning against the Lord, it stems from us not believing him fully, right? Uh, but Moses' unbelief took a particular form, and that form was anger. Moses was an angry man of God. It was something that he didn't have always, but he did wrestle with now and again. And in anger, Moses had lashed out at the people. Look at verse 10 again. Listen to what he says. Here now, you rebels, shall we bring water out for you out of this rock? Um, Psalm 106 comments on this in verse 32, and it says this. They angered him, Moses, at Meribah. It went ill with Moses on their account, for they made his spirit bitter, and he spoke rashly with his lips. And so the Psalms say that what was going on there was Moses' anger. He became embittered, and he spoke in anger, and um, he was told to speak to the rock, but instead he yells at the people. The other thing he did is in anger, Moses actually lashed out at God as well. If you look here in um, this passage, there's good evidence that Moses would have known that that rock was kind of a symbol of God's presence. And I say that because of Exodus 17, the first time that he did this, when he was told to strike the rock, it said this, the Lord said, behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. And you shall strike the rock. This was the previous time. And water shall come forth, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the people. And so when the Lord said initially, I will stand there on the rock, I'll be identified with this rock, he was identifying himself as the rock of Israel. And we see that throughout the scriptures, don't we? Throughout the Psalms, um, the Lord's often called the rock. 
And, and it's, it's a great symbol for him because he, the Lord is a rock and that he's like this huge rock that we can take refuge in, that we can hide in, that we can stand upon, that we can be protected by. It talks about his strength and his protection. And then in this symbol, the rock giving forth water, it shows that he's the rock that gives us life. So he gives us strength and he gives us protection. He gives us safety and he gives us life. And that first time, 40 years before, Moses was told to strike the rock. But in this time, he was told to speak to the rock. Now, if the rock is symbolic of the Lord himself, Moses striking it twice and um, it is, instead of speaking to it is a display of Moses' anger towards the Lord. It's a sign of severe disrespect towards the Lord, and it was done in the sight of all the people, and it was done by the one person that was told to lead them to show them that the Lord is holy. So here you have him angry, yells at the people, he starts striking the rock, and the Lord says, you did not hold me up as holy. You disrespected me in front of all these people. And so you can now see why the Lord says in verse 12, you did not uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I've given you. Um, Moses had dealt with anger. I mean, even before he kind of got saved, met the Lord, um, we know that he killed an Egyptian. He saw this Egyptian beating up on one of his, uh, another Jew, and he, he killed him. It seemed like with his bare hands, hit him in the sand. So cold-blooded murder there. Um, he had dealt with anger throughout the time um, in, in, uh, with Israel. And it's hard to tell which one of his things are righteous anger and which ones aren't. I mean, there's that great one where he comes down with the Ten Commandments, you know, and they're all worshiping the calf. And it says he burned with anger. Do you remember what he did? He ground up the calf, uh, the, the, the uh, golden calf, and he takes all that gold and he mixes it with water and he's like, drink it! And he makes all of them drink it. It's like a super gangster move, you know? It's like, whoa, we're going to drink this thing, you know? And, um, and I don't know if that was righteous or unrighteous anger at that point, but it was something that was a temptation of his. Now, God has greatly transformed him over this 40 years. You can imagine, if the guy wants patience, he's had plenty of opportunities to develop patience. And God has been giving him more and more self-control with his anger, but it's still a temptation. And some of you guys, you know, you think of certain things. God's greatly transformed you, but it's a temptation. You fall into it sometimes. You get super just, just really discouraged, you know, and then you realize, you know what? God is transforming me, but I do sometimes still fall into it. John Newton, the abolitionist and pastor who wrote Amazing Grace, he said this at the end of his life. John Newton said, I am not what I ought to be, and I'm not what I want to be, and not, I'm not what I hope to be, but by God's grace, I'm not what I used to be. And I can really say that for all of you who have been walking with the Lord for time. He is working through you, but there's certain things that are still a temptation. And for Moses, it was this anger. It, and at Kadesh, it got the best of him. Um, anger is an important subject for us to discuss in the church because there are a lot of angry Christians. Lots of them. Okay, There are a lot of angry Christians. There's a lot of angry Christian households. There are a lot of Christians that are angry at their coworkers, or they're angry at their boss, like continuously. They're angry at their employees or their clients. They're angry at their kids. You need to forgive your kids. You can't carry that stuff. You're angry at their kids. They're angry at their spouses. They're angry at their parents. They're angry at friends. They're angry at you know people on the road. You know, we had this one couple. We were talking through some issues in their marriage, and and one of them said, uh, you know, we were talking about anger. And um, she would, you know, when somebody was driving poorly, she'd honk at him. She'd pull up real close to him. She'd do all kinds of stuff. And I was like, why are you doing that? And she's like, how else are they going to learn? And I'm like, it's not your job to teach them how to drive. Like, 
you know? And, and it's weird because some of you guys are super road rage type people. You know what's funny is I never get offended on the road, which means that I must be the guy that's the problem, right? Because I'm just like, it's all cool out here, you know? I must be the other guy. So, um, but angry at people on the road, angry at, at those who've wronged us, angry at our political enemies. I mean, you just think of like people listening constantly to talk radio and stuff like that, and constantly being stoked by the news and stuff like that to be angry. There's a lot of angry Christians. And anger takes a lot of different forms. You know, you've got like your obvious, like super kind of flashy type anger, and you've got your kind of quiet anger. On the, on the more overt side, you've got things like murder, assault, Angry tirades, screaming, throwing stuff, threatening, insults. You move to the center, you've got like passive-aggressive comments and gossip and slander, which are all manifestations of anger. And then you've got your quieter kind, right? You've got your resentment and your bitterness and your coldness and your apathy and your abandonment. They're all forms of anger, okay? So if you're like, oh, I never yell at anyone. Well, I don't either, but I'm really good at hating you quietly, Right? <laughs> And so that's something that we all need to realize how anger is manifest in our lives and own it, right? We can't be like, oh, because I don't scream, I don't have problems with anger. Um, it has a bunch of different forms. And let me just ask you this. Let me get in your business. How is your home? Like, think about your home right now. Think about this week. Do you live in an angry home? Are there manifestations of anger in your home? Any of those? Not just the screaming, but the coldness, the resentment, the, the, the grudges. And then I want to ask you this. How is your heart? Do you have an angry heart? You know, when you're driving along, when you're thinking, when you're by yourself, is the natural kind of background noise of your heart, your hurts and resentment and anger? You know, do you have those? And I want to tell you this, guys. Treat anger in your home or in your heart as the real threat that it is. Anger kept Moses out of the promised land. Okay? Moses kept him out of the promised land. And men, I know, I know you guys as parents, you want to do everything you can to protect your kids. In fact, this generation's like, we're real good at it, right? We're helicoptery. We'll do anything to protect our kids from harm, but this is the harm you really need to protect them from. You need to protect them from your own anger, right? Men, if an intruder entered your house tonight to harm your family, what would you do? Right, I have a, noted, I have a loaded nine millimeter to take care of that if need be, right? You guys would protect your family. You hear that kind of, rah, you know? Treat your anger as that intruder. Your anger in your home is more dangerous than somebody that enters your home at night. Your anger, if you allow it to grow, will destroy your family. It will. It's a huge threat. Treat it as a big threat, guys. That anger you're harboring is a dangerous intruder in your home. Deal with it. Treat your anger as the real threat that it is. Anger kept Moses out of the promised land. And so what we're going to do this morning is I want to spend a little bit of time. We'll go out of numbers and then come back in. But I want to go through this kind of anger card that you got here. So you got five things on here. Um, I want something too much. That's James 4. I'm not the judge. I'm not God. Third one, God has been very gracious to me. Fourth one, God is in control. Fifth one, remember who I am in Christ. Okay, And so we're going to go through these five, and I want to go through these five because this is a way that we can search the scriptures to help diffuse and deal with the anger that's in our hearts. And we're doing this this morning because Sunday morning is actually a part, a very important part of our plan of discipleship and equipping you. 
know if you realize that. A lot of you just think of discipleship as, you know, two guys having coffee or something like that. But all that we do as a church is discipleship. It's all learning to do the things that Christ has commanded. And anger in our hearts, guys, and in our homes is a serious discipleship issue. So we're going to deal with that. Um, anger requires our direct action, okay? Um, sometimes with anger, you go, you know what? I just need to cool off. I'm just going to go for a drive. I'm just going to go for a walk. I'm just going to cool off. Cooling off is not dealing with your anger. You guys realize that? Because the feeling of anger will dissipate and go down, but you actually haven't dealt with your anger because the next time you're tempted, you're going to flare up all the, more fa- all the faster. Why? Because your heart was angry and you've built up that anger within you. Guys, you know how the forestry service says we should deal with our campfires? Because you could just kind of let a campfire just kind of slowly go out. What does the forestry service say to do? It says, it says drown it, stir it, feel it. Okay? That's how thoroughly you got to deal with it. Yes, be able to stick your hand in that thing before you leave. Okay? And, and the reason is, is because with a fire, if you just kind of let it go out, there's coals there. Anyone that camps knows it's just a little wind, and that thing will whip right back up again because you haven't dealt with the coals. That's what you're doing every time you say, you know what, I just need to go for a walk. I need to go to the gym. I need to do something. I'm just going to cool off. That's not dealing with it, right? We need to drown it, stir it, and feel it. And that's what we're going to do with these cards is, is learn how to do that. And so we want to drown it with the gospel, stir it in prayer, and then feel that new life that's coming to us through the Spirit, right? That's what we want to do. So let's go through these. So the first one, I want something too much. James 4, 1 through 2 says this, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So what that passage is saying is that anger is a sign, a symptom, that you want something too much, okay? That you have an idol, you have a thing that you want too much, you really fight to have it. You might ask, well, what about righteous anger? How many of you guys had that thought just now? What about righteous anger? What about righteous anger? There is a thing called righteous anger. Jesus had it in the temple. Remember in the temple, they, had a, um, they were selling things right in the court of the Gentiles, the only place Gentiles could come and worship, and they decided they were just going to have a swap meet there. So these people could not be there and pray, and Jesus comes in, he's righteously angry, he throws over tables, he drives them out with a whip, not usually the picture we're used to seeing of Jesus. That was righteous anger. Righteous anger has three components. You need to meet every one of them. The first one is, it needs to be a reaction against real sin. Okay? So it's not you're annoyed, it's not, not your preference, it's a real sin. Secondly, it's a real sin against God's kingdom, not yours. Don't move too quick past that one. Okay? It's a sin against God's kingdom, not yours. And then thirdly, it's righteously expressed. Okay? Jesus' anger passed all those three tests. Ours rarely does. Guys, you guys got to realize, and, and I think you could testify to this, all our anger feels righteous in the moment. Right? Have you ever been angry and not thought it was righteous anger? Right? You need to seriously, seriously doubt whether your anger is righteous. Because Moses here, he had a right to confront the people for their sin. It was his job to confront them for their sin. But he did it mainly, it seems, that he was angry about how it affected him. And he expressed it in an unrighteous way that actually dishonored the Lord. James 4 says that most of the time when we're angry, it's a symptom of our own idolatry. We want something too much. And those things are often good things. We all want obedient children, quiet if possible, right? Loving and respectful husband or wife. We all want an affirming boss and thankful and kind customers, right? We all want helpful friends. And we have verses that say that they ought to do that towards us. So you think, well, God's on my side on this one. 
Well, is he on your side about how much you want it and how angry you get when you don't receive it? And the answer is no, right? And so um, the, the, this, this anger, just see it as a smoke detector within your heart going off to say that you want something too much. Secondly, and so what you do is like, if you're like Philip Bilton, is you prayerfully go through these passages. That's what these are for. So you keep it with you or you take a picture of it so you have it on your phone. But, um, but we'd go through these. And, and it's interesting because some of them will work. And sometimes some will be more powerful at other times, but it gives you five ways to attack it. The next one is, I am not God. I am not the judge. Um, the passage here for that is Genesis 50, 19. And um, you remember the story there. Um, it was about Joseph. And Joseph was daddy's favorite. And the other brothers resented it. And they took him and they sold him into slavery to the Egyptians. And and he ended up being a slave there, got a really good job in Potiphar's house, then was falsely accused, and then ended up in prison, and then got out of prison, ended up rising to a really high status within Egypt. And then his brothers and his dad, there was a famine, and they came to Egypt to beg for food. And who was there to meet them in charge of food distribution but Joseph, right? And that terrifies them, right? It terrifies them. What will he do? And Joseph's response was to have mercy on them. A little bit later, the dad dies, and then they're really worried because they thought, well, he's probably keeping us alive because he just want to kill us and have to answer to dad. Well, the dad dies, and they're worried. In, in Genesis 50, 19, Joseph says this, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? That's what you need to ask yourself in your anger. Are you in the place of God? When we allow our anger to rule, even the silent kind, we're acting like we're God. We're acting like we're judge, jury, and executioner, right? And so we need to remind ourselves I am not God. I am not the judge. Thirdly, God is in control, which is, it's handy that the passage for that is actually the, the next verse in Genesis, Genesis 50, 20. And so what happened right after he said that, you know, I'm not God, he said this, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many should be kept alive as they are today. Isn't that awesome? So what, jo- what Joseph sees is he sees evil actions of his brother against him, but what he sees is equally the loving acts of God in it. It actually says in the Psalms that Joseph was sent ahead to get food for his people. <laughs> sent ahead. Sent ahead by his brothers, throwing him in a pit and sell him into slavery. But that was God's action, his sovereign action to preserve the whole family. whole family would have starved if the brothers hadn't thrown him into slavery and all this stuff. Terrible stuff for decades happened to this guy. Um, It was to save the whole family. Guys, God is accomplishing 10,000 beautiful things through every way someone wrongs you. They mean it for evil, maybe. If they do, if they mean it for evil, God means that exact same thing for good. God's able to do that. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it amazing God can do that? That he can allow people to do their evil actions and at the same time be very intentionally working good for you in that. It's not that he comes by later and cleans it up. He meant what happened to Joseph for good. He didn't fix it. He meant it from the beginning for good. Um, anger is a sign that we don't trust that God's in control, right? I think it was Jonathan Edwards that said, it's a sin to be mad at inanimate objects. And the reason he said that is because God is ultimately in control of all things, right? And, and so when we're angry, we're angry at God. We think he's not working things out for us the way that we would have him to. But we don't know, guys. Like, he's back there orchestrating all of human history, and we're like, I don't think you're doing it right. 
you want to come back here and look at the lovers? You know, like, no, <laughs> this is a complicated thing. And he knows what he's doing. I was in an appointment this week and I was um, getting super frustrated, which is a euphemism for anger, by the way. Frustration is sinful anger. It's just a different term for it. But I'm a horse vet and I went to this call and I knew it was going to be frustrating. And it was. And um, on top of the frustration of it, the client's kind of like taunting me, which was totally bizarre, but she had her own reasons for this. But she's like, after me the whole time while I'm doing something very frustrating. No excuse. You guys know that people can't make you angry? Did you know that? That's important. People don't make you angry. You get angry when people tempt you to anger, but, but they, and the reason I know this is because I know that a lot of you could have been in that same appointment and not gotten angry. You would have been fine. You'd been like, this lady's crazy, you know, and been fine with it. But um, I'm getting more and more angry at this situation, and, um, and I'm like, what is going on here? And then and all of a sudden I realize, like, I'm scheduled to preach on anger this week, you know? I'm like, this is a test, right? This is, like, designed. This is something God did. And so then I felt a little bit better about it. And then the horse, like, bit off my fingernail, like two-thirds of it, and the other third's, like, wobbling. So, um, but I was already not angry by then, which is good, because that probably would have really set me off, you know? So um, God is in control, guys. What might God be doing in this situation that's tempting you to anger? Because it's not just this person. God's doing something in this. And God's doing something for his glory and your joy. Fourth, uh, remember who you are in Christ. And I know I'm not doing these totally in order. Um, the passage that I have for that is in, is in Romans 6, 11, and it says this. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. When we're angry and we're tempted to anger, we need to remember who we are in Christ. Because a lot of times we feel like we're alone, it's up to our own power to fight this, and we just can't. But what we know is that through Jesus' death and resurrection, we've not only been forgiven for anger, but we've been freed from the tyranny of anger. Um, Romans 6 says that you become united with Christ through the Spirit, you've been connected with Him, such that Christ's life can flow through you. And Romans 6 says that baptism is actually a symbol of that. When, when you were baptized and you went down in the water, it was as if you died to your old life. And when you were pulled up again, it was as if you were raised to newness of life. And now you're connected with Jesus in such a way that his life can flow through you. We need to remember that. A lot of times we think it's all up to us. Baptism on the ninth, by the way. Um, we need to remember that. When we're in a time when we're tempted with anger, we need to pray. And we say, Father, I know that you don't want me to be angry at this. And, and I know that you've united me with Christ. Lord, please, would Jesus' life flow into my life now? I need to see a manifestation of the Holy Spirit in myself now. Father, give me Jesus' love and joy and peace. Help me to see this person in this situation the way you see it. And he'll answer that because you're united with Christ through the Spirit. He can actually channel Jesus' perfect loving life through you today. Isn't that cool? We need to remember that. So that's the fifth one on your card. And then the last one I want to deal with is God has been very gracious to me. The verse on the card for that is um, Ephesians 4.32. It says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, listen to this, forgiving each other as God in Christ forgave you. This is something to remember when we're angry is that God has been very gracious to us. You guys remember the, the story Jesus told in Matthew 18 about the unforgiving servant? Uh, and the story goes that there was this uh, master and he wanted to settle all the debts with all of the servants, and there was a servant brought to him, and when you do the money conversion, it's really strange, because it says that he owed the master 200,000 years wages. 
okay, which is like this astronomical, unpayable thing. And the guy says, oh, please have mercy on me, and I'll repay you. You know, please don't send me to prison. And, and the master actually not, doesn't put him on a payment plan. He says, you know what, I forgive you entirely. And that guy that had just been forgiven 200,000 years wages, it seems like it was right away, walks out, and he finds a servant that owes him 100 days wage, which is a lot. It's a third of a yearly income. That's a big deal. And we're not minimizing how people have wronged us, right? Big. But you know what he does? He says, pay me what you owe. And the guy pleads with him in the exact same way the other guy. He says, please, you know, don't throw me in prison. I'll, I'll pay my whole debt. And he grabs the guy and he starts choking him out, right? And then he throws him into prison. And the response of the master is fury. He says, you wicked servant, I forgave you because you asked and you did not forgive him. As how quickly we forget our forgiveness. When you look at that passage, it's amazing how quick it happened. Do you guys realize that to stay angry, you have to force yourself not to think about the gospel? Don't you? You're angry, and then like you start to think about the gospel, and you're like, no, 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 right? You actually have to force yourself not to think about the gospel, because the gospel is what actually will diffuse the anger that we have, because if we've been forgiven like that, then we ought to forgive others for a much lower debt. It's a great picture of the gospel because there is a being in the universe that has every right to be angry with you and to be angry with me. He has perfect righteous anger. And yet God the Son became a man to have that righteous anger, his own righteous anger, inflicted upon himself instead of you. Isn't that amazing? That's the gospel. Words propitiation. His wrath was turned away by absorbing it himself on the cross. He took the wrath that we deserve. And when we remember that, we won't want to anymore choke out that person that wronged us, right? When you are resentful and unforgiving and, or when you're cold or when you're yelling or when you're doing any of those manifestations, just imagine yourself that you're just choking that person out. You're driving along the road and you're thinking about the grudges and thinking about the things that people have done to you. You're in your mind just choking that person out. Your hands will let go as you see that God has paid your ultimate debt and he's removed all. There's no bit of God's anger towards you because of the cross, if you're a Christian. C.S. Lewis said this, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. When we remember the gospel, our anger gets extinguished. And so I just say, take this card, keep the card on you, take a picture of it, and next time that you're tempted, Actually, pray through these passages and dwell on these passages. And, and you, what we're doing is we're drowning the anger, right? And then we're stirring it in prayer. And then you got to stick your hand in it and go, do I feel the Holy Spirit? Do I feel the new life of Jesus coursing through me? If you don't, keep doing it, <laughs> right? And don't leave till you feel that the Spirit is actually freeing you in Syria. You must treat anger as the threat that it is. It will destroy you. It will destroy your family. It kept Moses out of the promised land. God has been very gracious to me. God's been very gracious to you. Now, going back to numbers, you might think, was God gracious to Moses? A lot of people look at this passage and they think, seems kind of harsh, right? He's done good work for him. Just seems like he fires him right on the spot. Like, what's going on here? Was God gracious in this passage? Um, God was gracious in this passage. God was gracious to his people. Take a look at verse 11. Moses lifted up his hand, and he struck the rock with a staff twice, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. It says water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank. We don't know exactly how many Israelites there are at this point, but there's well over a million of them. 
Okay, there's like 600,000 fighting men, and then you, they got families, and they got dudes that can't fight, and they got kids. It's a lot. Let's just say a million. It's more than a million, but let's just say a million. Let's give each one of them five gallons. That's five million gallons of water, right? That's easy math. If that water was going to be doled out over a 24-hour period, because if you gave it all at once, you'd probably drown them all, which would have solved some problems too, right? But if they got the water over a 24-hour period, that is 3,400 gallons per minute, which is like 40 fire hoses of water. So he strikes it, and water comes out abundantly, and then you got to realize they're livestock, right? Fed their life, gave water to their livestock too. Cows drink like 10 to 20 gallons of water a day. We're talking a massive amount of water here. It's a crazy amount of water. Water came out abundantly. Guys, water came out abundantly even though they were grumbling, rebelling, and their leader, their leader, disobeyed and dishonored God in front of everyone, and water pours out. Isn't God good? Isn't that tremendously gracious? They grumble, they rebel, their leader doesn't uphold God as holy, dishonors God in front of the whole, all of Israel, and water gushes out. Guys, that's us too, isn't it? That's us too. Just think about in our lives, have we have not held up God as holy? We've not held up God as holy in our lives. We've not held up God as holy in our families. We've not held up God as holy here as a church. I mean, just think of all the ways that we have been disobedient to him. And what does he do? He continues to bless us. Guys, God is generous and gracious. It's tremendous. Every one of y'all and me should be struck dead before we leave the building, right? And yet he's gracious and he continues to give us living water. God was gracious to Moses. Take a look at Deuteronomy 34. So after this incident, before the people go into, um, Israel, into the promised land, it says this, Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, and the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, all of Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negev, the plain that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zoar. And the Lord said to him, isn't this a cool thing? He's just like, look at it all. It's been like nice clear day, right? Let me show you everything. And he says this, Lord says to his friend Moses, this is the land of which I swore to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and I will give to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you not, shall not go there. So the Lord, Moses, is, uh, so Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried them in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Listen to this. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were undimmed and his vigor unabated. The people of Israel wept for Moses in the plain of Moab 30 days. And the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And I just think this is such a beautiful scene. This is God himself going like, hey, let me show it to you. He shows it all to him. This is the whole thing. They're getting all this. And then he says, and then it's so great because the Lord himself buries his friend Moses. You know? The Lord loved that man, Moses. They were friends. He loved him. Buried him himself. And, um, and he loves you like that too in Christ. Um, and then God let Moses set foot in the promised land later. Do you know when? When did Moses set foot in the promised land? Transfiguration, right? Look at Luke 9, 28. It says, Jesus took Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while they were praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing was dazzling white. And then behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of Jesus' departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. I love that word departure is, is the Greek word 
Exodus. Jesus is talking about the Exodus. Jesus is talking about his cross as being the ultimate Exodus, the ultimate way to save God's people, not from Egypt, but from the real tyranny of Satan and and his kingdom of darkness. And, And it's the real Exodus because it's opening up for them and for us the true promised land. You guys realize that the promised land actually was symbolic of something that's to come, the new, the new earth. On the cross, guys, Jesus was uh, struck to give us his people life. Just as that rock was struck and water came forth, Jesus was struck to give us life. In fact, that's the connection Paul makes. Look at 1 Corinthians 10.1. He says this, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. It's a weird verse. They all drank, they all ate spiritual food, the manna, they all drank spiritual drink from a spiritual rock that followed them, I don't know what that means. That's a super interesting thing. And that rock was Christ. Jesus Christ is the true rock that was struck to give us the waters of eternal life. In Numbers 20, it's so cool because you have Moses, this symbol of the law, striking this rock that symbolizes Christ, right? He is getting the strike that we all deserve. We've all broken God's law, and we deserve to be struck by that law, right? But Jesus stood in our place and was struck on our behalf, and when the law's strike fell on Christ, it yielded forth life for us. On the cross, Jesus, this is so cool, on the cross, Jesus Christ is Yahweh himself willing to be disrespected in front of all of Israel, Remember that was the crime that Moses did? When God came in Christ, he came and intentionally was disrespected in front of all of Israel to save us from our sins as he hung on that cross. And and it was so we could get living water. John 7, Jesus says this, On the last day of the feast, and this was a feast to commemorate how God had supplied water in the wilderness, Jesus stood up and he said, If anyone's thirsty, let him come to me. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And he said this about his spirit, that those who believed in him would receive. For the spirit had not yet been given, because he himself had not yet been glorified. Glorified meaning gone to the cross. And it was so that we could have that water of living life, and it's also so that we could enter the true promised land. That promised land stood, stood as a picture of a promised land to come. And it's not just one small patch of the earth. God, in, in, in Revelation 21 and 2, it talks about him remaking the whole physical world and giving that as the true promised land that we live in, a place that is ruled uh, by Jesus, a place that all of his redeemed people will live in. And so that's the other way that God loved him. He loved him by showing him land. He loved him by letting him set foot in the land. And he loved him by giving him a home in the true promised land to come. Has Moses received it? He hasn't. He hasn't received that land yet. Right now he's in heaven. He doesn't have his body right now. And what will happen is at the resurrection we'll all be raised, we'll all be given new bodies, and this promised land will have kind of like this grand opening banquet that we'll all be invited to if you trust in Jesus. If you repent of your sin and trust in him, you're going to be a part of that great banquet in that true promised land and it's going to be this really great family reunion. All of God's people. The Lord's Supper is where we remember that. We remember the, the costly price that was paid for us to enter that place. You remember his body. The bread symbolizes his body. The cup symbolizes his blood. 
And as we take these and we remember what Jesus has done for us, we're going to be fed by him as well. The Lord's Supper reminds us of a great gathering where all God's people will come into the true promised land. And in this, you know, you say this, you go, well, it's kind of a tiny piece of bread. And it's a tiny little cup. Yeah, it is, because it's an hors d'oeuvre of a banquet to come. It's an hors d'oeuvre. Listen to how the prophet Isaiah says it. He says this, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all people, all believing people, a rich feast of food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that's cast over all people. I think that's the sin and the curse. And the veil that is spread over all nations. And the Lord will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away every tear from their faces. And the reproach of his people will be taken away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. The Lord's Supper reminds us of that day as we look forward to it coming. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.